You're listening to Sermons by the Park, the weekly sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard, and our current sermon series is called A Way Out of No Way. These sermons are drawn from scriptures in the book of Exodus, a book that is all about who God is and who we are in relation to God. It speaks to those moments in our lives when we can feel stuck or uncertain about what comes next. The good news, friends, is God has a word for times like these. Here's this week's message. The first scripture reading today is from Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. Let us listen for God's word for us today. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Python and Ramesses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with the hard service in mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she will live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Our second scripture reading continues in the book of Exodus, picking up where the story left off in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's continue listening for God's word for us here today. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him 
and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and he was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the child's mother took the child and nursed it. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This too is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Join me now in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Help us, O God, to hear your good news in the midst of struggle, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of suffering. Help us, O God, by drawing near to us now. Let your presence be in this place And may the words of my mouth and indeed the meditations of all of our hearts here be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This morning's scripture passage is a reminder. Sometimes things can go from good to bad, and then they can go from bad to worse. But even when that happens, there is still hope if you know what you're looking for. This week we're beginning a three-week series on the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is fundamentally about answering two questions for the Israelite people. First, who are we as Israelites, as a people? And second, who is God? The theologian John Calvin begins his uh, systematic work uh, called the Institutes with, with this claim that there really only are two kinds of knowledge that matter, he says. There's knowledge about God and knowledge about humankind. And of course, because he's a theologian, he says that the knowledge about God is the most important. But, imp- but significantly, he says, we can't answer that question about who God is without understanding something about ourselves, about humankind. And so here, Exodus brings those two questions together. But of course, these are questions that we all ask in our lives. Who am I as a person? Who are we as a church, as a nation, as a people? Who are we and who is God? And Exodus has a lot to teach us about that. And even here in these first passages, where if you were listening carefully, you will note God is not around. There is no mention of God's action, God's activity. It is the opposite of the beginning of Genesis, where the first thing that happens is that God speaks. Here, the first thing that happens is that the leader of the Israelite people, Joseph, who had ensured that they would have safety in the land of Egypt, who had helped 
the Egyptians to weather uh, a catastrophe, a famine in their land. Joseph, this great leader, had died. And all of his brothers had died, and that whole generation had died out. And then there were subsequent generations. There were many, many, many generations after that. It says the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they increased and spread across the land. And that's your first Easter egg. Because being fruitful and multiplying is precisely what God says to humankind in Genesis 1. God creates humankind and says, be fruitful and multiply and spread across the face of the earth. That is God's will and God's intention for the people. And even though God doesn't say it here, it is still God's intention for them, even in a foreign land. But of course, there is a crisis. And the crisis here is that there's a contradiction between what God wills for the Israelite people in this place and the place that they are, this land of Egypt. A new king arises. And instead of remembering the history of Joseph and his people helping the Egyptians to weather the disaster, how they were stronger together, instead the new king sees the Israelites as a threat. Over and over again we, we hear Pharaoh being referred to as addressing his people. He's speaking to his people, the Egyptians, not to the Hebrews. Of course, this experience of threat from people who are different from us, who are not our people, is not a new one. Many experience this crisis today. And of course, sometimes that is brought on simply by the demographic changes, that new people move to new places. Uh, this has been the case for such a long time. This has been the case around the world for the last number of years as people have been displaced by war and climate change. People are moving around all the time, but, but here in America there has been a particular concern with the fact that uh, for the first time in maybe 20, maybe 30 years, America will no longer be a majority white nation. And so this, this idea that, that, that the majority status will be lost, that non-white people will be in the majority, that, that fuels a fear in some people, a similar kind of fear to that the Egyptians had when they saw that the Israelites outnumbered them. But of course that fear ignores the obvious history that America has always been a land of people who come from other places, at least in its modern iteration. It's important to remember that we are all, of course, occupying native and indigenous people's lands, that we, too, came from somewhere else. So again, remembering that history could avoid a crisis here. That's one change. Of course, the other change is that, for the first time, just in recent polling, uh, American Protestants... Christians, as we uh, like to think of them, are, are already in the minority. For the first time since polling began, there are less than 50% of Americans who, who identify as Christians. And of course, that's a striking finding, um, but the United Church of Christ has been a minority religion for a very long time. This little corner of the church that we live in has been a small thing. And we, we lose sight of that sometimes. 
But of course, if we remember our history, we know it's not necessarily a bad thing to be in the minority. In this case, it's the Hebrew people's status as a minority that allows them to grow and flourish in the land. But the key verse here, the key verse, is that even in the midst of this crisis brought on by an ignorance of history, brought on by a prejudice and a fear about a changing nation, even in the midst of that, the key verse says, the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out. The more they were oppressed, the more they did what God willed them to do. Be fruitful, multiply spread across the land. Intolerance and oppression, it is not indifferent. Suffering is real. The labors described in the text are hard. The genocide being perpetrated by the Pharaoh is a horror. But the message of that verse, the message of this story of Exodus, is that intolerance and oppression ultimately will not stop God's will from being done. The more they are oppressed, the more God's will is done. God shows up in this story in hidden ways. And God's hidden mercy is often found precisely in those moments of great struggle, of great suffering, of oppression. The Christian religion, according to the Reformation-era theologian Martin Luther, he says is all about embracing that reality. He says true Christian religion does not begin at the highest, as all other religions do, but at the lowest. Whenever you are concerned to think and act about your salvation, you must put away all speculations about majesty all thoughts of works and traditions and philosophy, indeed the law of God itself, and instead run directly to the manger and to the mother's womb and embrace the infant Jesus, the child of a virgin in your arms, and look to him, born lowly, being nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all and having authority over all things." And of course, we often think of the book of Exodus in terms of the Ten Commandments and seas parting and fire rain down from skies and flies and all these amazing majestic works. And we'll get to that. But it's important, as Luther reminds us here, that at the beginning of the story, where we begin is not among the highest. It is among the lowest in the form of an infant who will grow up and go about and who will teach, and who will die. What this shows is that those majestic interventions, they're not the exception. They're not how things begin. The rule is rather that suffering and resistance on the margins, that is where God is at work in times of of change and suffering. And so we get to this other hidden gem here, which are the, are the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. Their names mean, mean something along the lines of life givers. And one of the questions about these Hebrew midwives was whether they were midwives who were Hebrew or they were Egyptian midwives who simply served 
the Hebrews. I think that latter interpretation is an interesting one because it shows that it wasn't just the Hebrews who feared God, that there were Egyptian women who, in serving the Hebrew women, came to understand and to know the God of the Israelites. And so because they fear God, because of their actions, they resist Pharaoh's decree in a subtle and important way, refusing to to do his bidding and be complicit in his genocide. And it doesn't stop the genocide from continuing. This is the important thing. It almost seems like what they do is a failure because the whole situation seems to escalate from there. Now, instead of, of them being ordered to take these male babies away in, in the home, now they're just, all of the people are out for blood against the Hebrew children. And so that may seem like their resistance was, was not worthwhile. But I think, again, it's a reminder that sometimes God stands in a position of the lowest, that it is those with the greatest social influence and political power who are the ones waging evil and oppression, but it's the least powerful here, the women and the children who are the ones who who plant the seeds of God's saving work. Another hidden gem here is Moses' mother. It says after she gave birth to this baby, this Hebrew child, she looked at him and it says she saw that he was a very fine baby. Um, The more literal translation of that verse is she saw that it was good. Now where have you heard that before? Here we have Moses' mother echoing the actions of God, of the creator. That that creative potential and capacity of God to see things as good is not God's alone. It's here. It's in the way a mother looks at her child. And so seeing that her child is good, she works hard to protect him. She, she hides him, almost as if she put him in a sort of secluded, protected garden, if you will. But when she could hide him no longer, when she had to take him out into the world, She knew that she would have to comply with the Pharaoh's order to throw him into the river. And so she complied with a little catch. She lined a basket with bitumen and pitch, which is, of course, what Noah did with the ark. He built the boat and he lined it with bitumen and pitch so that it would be watertight. And so Moses was placed into the ark, and thrown into the river to sit upon the face of the waters, just as Noah and his family did. Again, Moses' mother complies with the law, but she resists. She resists because she knows God's intention for the son is not destruction, for she saw that he was good. Even in the midst of this horrendous situation, this genocide, this suffering, there is still beauty and goodness to be seen. Moses' mother sees it, and she works to protect it. And so we must follow after her and after God in looking for those beautiful things, those moments, and protect them. 
We have to resist our natural inclinations to focus instead only on the misery, on the suffering, on all the negativity out there and see the beauty and the goodness. Again, this doesn't make suffering any less real, but it is the way we begin to mark a way forward in such times. The last little hidden gem here is Moses' sister, Miriam. When her brother gets put into the ark and put into the reeds, what does she do? She goes, it says, and she stands far off to watch and see what would happen. This is another deep cut. Because you know who else stands far off in Scripture? God stands far off in Scripture. Psalm 10 opens with the words we opened our prayer of confession with here today. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The people of Israel recognized God's absence. And they were willing to put it to God. They're trying to answer that question. Who is this God? Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide in the midst of this suffering? And of course, it's a question that we all have asked at one time or another. We've asked, where is God? Where is God when the hurricane comes? Where is God when the marriage falls apart? Where is God when the cancer grows? Where is God when, when social issues like racism or inequality grow in our society, where is God? And the answer, perhaps, is that God is standing far off. And that's a hard thing to hear. But if we look to Miriam, we see that God is standing far off, watching to see what happens. And that's good news. Because it means that even when God is far off, God is not gone. God is present in the absence, God is still with us. And that is good news. Because watch what happens. When the maid finds the basket and brings it to Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby and takes pity. And just at that moment, who runs up? Moses' sister. To say, hey, do you need a nurse for that baby? I know someone who could help. And just like that, her intervention allows Moses to grow, be nurtured physically, socially, spiritually in the home of his family, to know his people before he's then taken into the house of Pharaoh. And that's critical for his future. He has to know where he comes from before he goes out into the world to face the great crisis of his time. And, and watch, watch again here that, that Pharaoh's daughter takes pity. Think about the way the Egyptians have been described up to this point. The word that's used over and over again is ruthless. They are ruthless in their dealings with the Hebrews, but not Pharaoh's daughter. In fact, the word used here is the antonym, the exact opposite to ruthless. She has mercy upon the child. She takes pity upon the child. It shows you that even people on opposite sides of these divides, even a divide as grievous as that between Egyptians and Israelites in this moment, can still see one another. That even Pharaoh's daughter could see the child, take pity on him. She could see that he was good. 
It's a good thing, I think, sometimes that God stands far off. Because if God stood too close, God might act a little too much like we do. And there wouldn't be these moments, these moments when people defy the expectations, when the people who are least powerful show their power, when the people who are other show their compassion. That is the work of God in the world, but we have to keep watch for it. It's only by being so different from the world that God is able to intervene and and to save the world. But it is hard to wait. It is hard to wait and to keep watch, to stand far off and to see what happens. I spoke a little bit last week about that sense of crisis, this idea that the church is in decline, the churches everywhere are shrinking, that this church is shrinking from its former glory. And in the midst of this crisis, many churches run around trying to do new things, trying to create new programs to seek relevance, to get back to the way things were. But, but instead, the solution that presents itself, and again, I think it presents itself here, is that maybe the answer here is to wait, that we are called to wait for God to act in the world knowing that we can't compel God to do anything. Of course, everything about the way we live our lives today rebels against this very notion. All of modern life is about not waiting for anything, ever. The comedian uh, Ronnie Chang has this great bit I love he does about Amazon Prime. He said, when Amazon Prime first came out, it was great. You don't have to wait five days for things. Now you can get them in two days. Fantastic. And then they came out with free one-day shipping. Fantastic. And then they came out with this thing called Prime Now, where you could literally have someone come. You could order something on your phone. They would come to your car, open the trunk, put it in. Two hours. Just two hours. And he said, you know what I really want? I want Prime before. I want them to just send me the stuff I need before I even think about it. But it's not just about technologies like that. All of modern life is about getting rid of those moments of of waiting. Uh, I think about that movie Forrest Gump, uh, about, you know, Tom Hanks sitting there on the bench, just chatting away with whoever happens to sit down next to him, and how awkward that is for all the various people who come and sit down next to him. I think about students uh, that I get in the elevator with sometimes uh, in one of the classroom buildings who reflexively look at their phones instead of the people around them in the, you know, five seconds it takes to get from floor one to floor four. Of course, there are all sorts of ways in which our social interactions are are conditioned to be more and more seamless. And of course, politics today, too. That's, again, it's, it's, it's antithetical to waiting. Every election is an important election. Every issue is an important issue. But democracy takes time, and that is deeply frustrating to so many people. And of course, here in the church, we have that same sense, right? If we don't get new people in here right now, there will be no one left to keep the church going. We need to fix things now. It's too late But I think 
that at least here in the church, at least in this one place we've carved out where we are trying to listen for what God is saying to us in this season, in this time, we cannot buy into that mentality of speeding everything up. We have to look to someone like Miriam, this little child, who stood at a distance and watched and waited. And of course, waiting is not doing nothing. Waiting is an activity. To stand and to watch is is an active thing. Because when you're waiting for something, you're looking for it. And when you see it, you can celebrate it. This is another one of those hidden gems of God's mercy, that when we wait, our vision improves. We start to see the seeds of things going forward. I was thinking about the fair. I was thinking about the people who get a little disgruntled at the fair, about having to wait in all those lines for this, that, or the other thing. And that the big struggle we always have each year afterwards is how can we get rid of the wait times, right? How can we get those wait times down? But the more I think about it today, we are teaching all of our neighbors a valuable lesson (laughs) in the importance of waiting. And that's a little, I mean, that's a little silly, but I actually think it's true because I think, you know, it goes to some of the things people say. When you remind people where they are, when you remind people this is a, a church event, people instantly sort of, well, most people tend to uncoil a little bit. But it's true that we don't, it's hard to learn that lesson of waiting. But I think, you know, the fair is a good case of of waiting not just being about sitting around. We're doing something, but we have to remember why we're doing it. And that what we're looking for in that day is not just how many bodies we can cycle through this situation. It's how many connections we can make, how many neighbors we can greet, how many, how many spirits we can lift together. And so I wonder about what are the other ways that we can continue as a church to wait in this season. And um, I wrote a little bit about this in this month's uh, CIA, that one of the ways to, to keep our eyes on the prize when we're waiting is, is called a watchword. A watchword is something that keeps us accountable to our waiting. How many people have read the CIA? Oh, good for you. You get extra credit. Very good. I know, it just came out on Friday. Who reads emails on Friday afternoon? I don't. But a watchword, a watchword comes from this uh, idea in Judges 12, uh, a story about the, the Israelites facing off against uh, the Philistines, and they had this word, shibboleth that they used to identify friendly soldiers from foes. Uh, During the D-Day invasion, the the paratroopers who went in behind enemy lines uh, had a similar sort of call and response greeting. When soldiers would hear other soldiers, they would say, one would say flash, and the other would say respond with lightning. And if they heard that, they would know that it was friendly and and not an enemy. And that's one of the contexts of, of a watchword. It helps us to recognize our people, our friends. But a watchword also is about capturing what we are watching for. Again, the theologian Andrew Root, who I referenced last week, he says that a watchword engenders an attentiveness. It captures the purpose 
of a church. And the purpose of the church, again, he says, is to draw into relation with the world, to love the world as it waits for God to come into the world. A watchword is more than just a vision statement. It's more than a mission. It is an orientation, a way of being that is captured in a phrase that we can repeat for ourselves over and over again. And I think that I heard one of these at my installation service a couple weeks ago. The Reverend Alex Will came and he gave us this wonderful charge for the congregation. Um, and the third point of his charge uh, was this, uh, this saying. He was talking about rugby. And he said in rugby, when one player runs ahead of the others, the other players come with them and they shout, with you. They say, I'm with you. And sometimes they even grab onto that player's clothing to help them push against the, the opposing team to move the ball forward. And Alex reminded us that this is true in the church as well. That no one goes alone in anything in the church. Not even the disciples, when they went out, went by themselves. Jesus sent them out first two by two. When Paul went out on missions, he brought a whole bunch of people with him, and he was always writing letters back to them to remind them that they were with him on that journey. And even here, in this story of Exodus, we see God showing up in the people who are with others. Miriam is with her brother, and the midwives, well, the midwives are with the Hebrew women. That word midwife literally comes from a German word that means with women. That's what it means to be a midwife, is to be one who is with women. And so I think this phrase, with you, is a good reminder for us that we should watch out for one another, that we should stand with one another, that we should not let anyone go alone out into new adventures and new ideas. But I also think that with you is a reminder that we should look out beyond the walls of this church and to draw nearer to the world, to those people who need to hear those words, I'm with you. Most of all, I hold on to this watchword because it, it reminds me of the promises of God, that God has promised to be with us. And ultimately, that is what answers the deepest questions of the book of Exodus and of our own lives. Where is God in a time of suffering? Who am I? Who are we? Who is God? The answer, I think, is with you. With you. Amen. To find out more about Union Congregational Church, you can visit our website at www.churchbythepark.org, or you can find us on social media at Church by the Park. Our theme music this week is by Kings Canyon. Thank you once again for taking the time to listen. I hope God's word has blessed you richly. And until we meet again, may God's peace be with you.